podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies of yesteryear. It's Monster Kid Radio. My name is Lexi Deluxe, and I'm welcoming you to my uncle's podcast. This week's song is Evil Thought from the album El Calavera. The band is Operation Octopus, and you can find them at operationoctopus.bandcamp.com. Check them out after you're done listening to this episode of the show. That was my amazing niece, Lexi. This is Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the podcast, and big thanks to Lexi for being part of the show this week and welcoming you to episode 400, I think it's 455, of the podcast. Check the show notes. You guys know how that works by now. Anyway, uh, you can find Lexi on YouTube. Is it under Lexi Deluxe? Yep, it is under Lexi Deluxe. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to that as well. Of course, there will be a link in the show notes to Professor Frenzy's website as well because he's providing another bedtime story this week. We also have a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland from Kenny and the bulk of the conversation, the big part of the show, what you're here for this week, week four of the Satanic Rites of January, is a look at the movie The Devil Rides Out from Hammer, and we're going to be doing that with author Frank Schildener. So that'll be coming up right after this. What do you think, Lexi? Should people go ahead and... uh, I don't know, listen to the rest of the show? Yes, I do. Don't let my niece down, man. Let's do this. (laughs) Dr. Tongue's I had that shot, 7129 Northeast Fremont Street, vintage goofiness from years gone by. Sci-fi and fantasy memorabilia. We specialize in things your mother threw away. And some she didn't. Dr. Tongue's Toys. Vampires. Werewolves. Zombies. Yes, these things are real. But fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. Out of the darkness of the ancient past, out of the dust of centuries and the inscrutable silence of the unknown, come two new adventures in shock and suspense on one sensational motion picture program. The The Mummy. Mummy. Plus Curse of the Undead. Fear will freeze you when you face The Mummy. It tears steel bars like paper. It snaps men's spines like matchsticks. It walks through bullets like a ghost. Waken from the darkest tomb of the pharaohs, it stalks the earth with strangely human desires. The Mummy. And on the same program, Curse of the Undead. The haunting story of a faceless fiend who drained the young and beautiful of life. Together on one program, Curse of the Undead, and in chilling technicolor, The Mummy. Mummy. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show.
Welcome to Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories, created especially for Monster Kid Radio. My name is Jerry Green. In this segment, I'm going to tell you a story from EC Horror Comics. Today's story is Horror House. It's from the Vault of Horror number 15, the October-November issue from 1950. It was written by Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein, and the art was by Johnny Craig. So sit back and relax while I tell this disturbing tale. Henry was a writer for a horror magazine. He was having trouble meeting his deadlines because his friends kept coming over to his city apartment to party. Henry just couldn't say no to a party. His boss gave him an ultimatum, get his work done on time or he will be fired. Henry decided to move out of the city to the country. He found the perfect spooky house to write his latest gruesome tale, Milford Manor. The real estate agent warned him that the house was haunted, but all the better to do his spooky writing. Henry finished his first story when the doorbell rang. It was three of his friends from the city, Ted, Roger, and Gene. They wanted to party, but Henry drove to the city to drop off his manuscript, leaving his friends behind. The three friends decided to scare Henry back to the city. Using phonograph records and hidden speakers, they set up spooky sounds all over the house to frighten the writer. When Henry got home, he found a note from Gene telling him that they left in terror. The house is haunted. Glad to be rid of them, Henry did some chores, but then heard a blood-curdling scream. He went to investigate, but then heard something covered in chains coming up the stairs. He went to go down to the cellar, but a ghost under a sheet barred his way. Henry ran out of the house screaming. Ted, Roger, and Jean got a good laugh. Their plan surely worked. Henry is sure to move back to the city now. Just then, Jean saw something that horrified her. The others saw it too. They screamed in terror. When Henry returned with the cops, they found a body of a man on the front lawn with his face eaten off. Inside, they found Ted. He had hung himself. Then they heard chilling laughter. They went to the basement to find Jean now with totally gray hair, gibbering like an idiot. Whatever she saw drove her to madness. Henry moved back to the city and didn't mind his friends having a good time. It's better than being alone. The end. I hope you enjoyed that haunted story. This one is a classic. It's a little fussy with all the plot machinations over just seven pages, but even so, you can feel Henry's frustration at not being able to work because of his friends, and he has a good solution to move away. But his frustration continues when his pals show up on his doorstep. The thing that makes this story work so well for me, though, is what happens to Jean. She has seen something that snapped her mind, like something that would happen in a Lovecraft story. And the way Johnny Craig depicts the insane Jean is amazingly creepy to me. She has a Joker-like smile gripping her face. Her eyes are wide open with tears spilling out of the corners. Her mouth is open to emit a crazed laugh. And her previously black hair is now totally gray. Her hands are up around her shoulders with her hands down like a dog begging for a treat. Freaky to the max. Craig's other panels are nearly as impressive. This is a well-told comic book story. If you're interested in a copy of The Vault of Horror Volume 1, the book can be purchased on Amazon, and you can find a link to buy it on the MKR website. I hope you enjoyed the story. My name is Jerry Green, and you can listen to my podcast on the Frenzy feed.
On Wednesday, we have the Professor Frenzy Show, where we talk about new indie comics. And on Monday, we have Memory Minute Monday, a nostalgia podcast. And on Sunday, listen to Frenzy Peace Theater, where we recap and discuss classic comic book stories. You can also catch me on Twitter at Professor Frenzy and search for Professor Frenzy on YouTube, where you can join me on the Professor Frenzy Show video style on Wednesday nights around 8 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will show off my weekly comic book purchases and play a little guitar. Stay tuned and thanks for listening. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy show. Don't look. Shield your eyes. For on the day you look upon them, you will surely die. House. Of the Gorgon. Why don't you let us alone? Get back on your train and leave us alone! Rumors circling around. Uh, mysterious happenings at night. Uh, strange noises emanating from the dark. Leave Karlstadt. Leave now and never come back. Stay away from them. They mean you great harm. <laughs> Starring Caroline Monroe as the Baroness. What was the sinister secret she hid beneath her dark spectacles? Martine Beswick as her sister Uriel, malevolent and evil. You would sacrifice all that we've done merely to quench your innate desire oh, for violence. Oh, what if I did? Veronica Carlson as Anna, the one woman in the village of Karlstadt willing to stand against these angels of death. I can fight you. We can fight you. Christopher Neem as Llewellyn, a man of faith locked in mortal combat with overwhelming evil. If we leave them alone, maybe they'll leave us alone. Also starring Joshua Kennedy as the mysterious Dr. Pritchard. And introducing Georgina Dugdale, Gooey Film's latest star discovery, the Gorgon's most beautiful victim. See all of this and more when you visit the House of the Gorgon. Cast you out! Every unclean spirit, every satanic power, in the name and by the power of our Lord Jesus Christ! We let things pile up in the DVR, we add them to our queues, we wait for the DVDs and Blu-rays, we time shift. The Time Shifters Podcast. Sci-fi, horror, fantasy, superheroes, comedy, action, film, television, maybe some not-so-current events. Find us on iTunes or at timeshifterspodcast.com. The Fury of the Wolfman, a strange and mysterious story packed with intrigue and horror. What was the terrible secret that haunted Walter Mendeninsky and that threw him into a world of violence and terror?
This is the story of a haunted man, a life bewildered by mystery and horror. And nothing could keep Dr. Elman away from using even grave tombs for her horrible experiments. <laughs> Don't worry. And destiny pushed Professor Daninsky into the lives of monstrous freaks. The mysterious world of the beautiful Dr. Ilona Elman. A wild battle in a world full of gruesome violence and horror. A world of the lowest passions. This is the story of a man who changed into a wild beast. There's something strange. What are you going to do now? I want you to listen carefully to this, Danitsky. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. This week's movie, The Devil Rides Out, never had an article dedicated to it, but the film was mentioned in various compilation articles throughout the years. In issue 67 from July of 1970, an issue dedicated to satanic and occult movies, an article entitled Witches and Demons Among Us had this to say about The Devil's Bride, the American title of Devil Rides Out. One of the best terror flicks ever to come from Hammer Studios was The Devil's Bride, based on Dennis Wheatley's famed novel The Devil Rides Out. Christopher Lee played the Duc de Richelieu, a French nobleman of the early 20th century who sort of doubled in the role of the White Warlock to combat the evil of Black Warlock Mokada, Charles Gray, during the course of the film. Mokada conjures up various demons, one in the form of a huge spider, before Lee is able to send him riding off with his unholy master into hell. This article was later reprinted in issue 106 and 129. In issue 95 from January of 1973, The Devil Rides Out was mentioned in an article about giant bugs in the movies. Satanism and witchcraft were the main themes in The Devil's Bride. The photography in this one surpassed the unconvincing plot, and Christopher Lee's distinguished acting added a great deal to the story. In the last half of the film, Lee, a hero this time, and a few other people were trying to defend themselves from a group of devil worshippers. While the evil ones launched magical assaults against them, the good guys found refuge within the perimeter of a magician's circle. A giant tarantula was among the illusions that the witches created. It appeared in the same room that the heroes were in. Lee had a difficult time making the others believe it was only a hallucination, but as soon as he did, the loathsome creature vanished. Issue 182 from April of 1982 had an article entitled Witches and Demons Among Us which had this brief description of today's movie. 1968 saw the release of The Devil's Bride, The Devil Rides Out in England, a Hammer film starring Christopher Lee. Directed by Terence Fisher, The Devil's Bride concerns itself mainly with Chris Lee's battle against a deadly satanic cult, though manifestations of slaves of the devil appear throughout the picture. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time for MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. In January of 1974, the American Broadcasting Company brought forth on this continent a new sitcom, conceived by Derry Marshall and dedicated to the proposition that the 1950s were awesome. That sitcom was, of course, Happy Days. It ran for 10 years and 255 episodes, casting a long shadow across American popular culture. 
Week after week, millions thrilled to the adventures of Richie, Fonzie, Joni, Hotsey, Ralph Mouth, and the whole gang from Milwaukee. Hello, friends. I'm Joe, and I'm half of the broadcasting team behind These Days Are Ours, a podcast dedicated to all things Happy Days. Together with my co-host Emily, we'll be exploring the series episode by episode, breaking down the themes and telling you what it all means. You can join us on this journey by visiting thesedaysareours.libson.com. Just like the original Happy Days, we'll have new episodes every Tuesday. Be there or be square. Forboding place of no return. Hercules in the haunted world. An unearthly world of eternal darkness. Ghostly kingdom of the undead demons of death. From these horrifying, hideous creatures of evil, Hercules and his friend must save their doomed kingdom and the women they love. Hercules wants something. He always wants something. But when I return, I'll never leave you again. This I promise you. Hercules and Theseus battle treacherous, monstrous forces of evil in the forbidden depths of a haunted underworld. The stone you are made, and by stone you shall be destroyed! I will serve you as your slave as long as you live. Save me, I beg Stop! It's a trap! Don't trust the shadows of Hades! Nefarious, fiendish Lyco, mastermind of terror, must be destroyed. Reg Park as the heroic Hercules in the haunted world. Here are the seven wonders of the world rolled into one fantastic adventure. Frankenstein, born again to rule in terror, a monster unleashed to conquer all who stand in his destructive path. Frankenstein conquers the world. Spreading panic as millions flee his vengeance. Frankenstein towering over cities, defying the force of armies, the might of navies, and the fury of jets. Frankenstein, a name never equaled in the annals of terror. Frankenstein conquers the world. Stars Nick Adams as the American scientist versus Frankenstein, incarnate. With the strength of a thousand men, a phenomenon such as never seen before, see Frankenstein Conquers the World, astounding on the giant screen, in color scope from American International Pictures. This is Count Dracula. And I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited. And occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. 
I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. When I pull up Skype to bring people on the show, because that's my primary tool of communicating with people, I'm able to see when the last time it was I chatted with them, and it's been, I think it said seven months when I pulled up Frank Schildener. Frank, welcome back to Monster Kid Radio. Thank you, Derek. It's great to hear from you again. I mean, we're in contact on Facebook all the time, but nah, we haven't spoken since uh, seven months. That's about right. Now I get to hear the dulcet tones of Master Childerner on the line. <laughs> it must be another member of my family. It ain't coming from me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we do communicate quite a bit on Facebook. I'm, I follow you on Facebook, and I see on Facebook that you're posting all the time about writing this and working on that and getting an idea for another story here and another story there. And I can almost tell exactly what Frank is reading and or watching because, like me, Everything that he consumes inspires him. So when The Watcher dropped on Netflix, suddenly Frank's starting to talk about sword and sorcery stories. <laughs> and fortunately, I wrote the right uh, one of my publishers, and he actually asked me to write a three-book uh, sword and sorcery fantasy series. So, so there you go. I, I guess that worked out for me, yeah. Yeah. yeah the, Witcher, the Witcher inspired me to go to take a plunge into that. I wrote one book on that, a different sword and sorcery original, uh, supposed to come out in 2020. Uh-huh. From Pro Se Productions called Red God's Rage, and that's an Egyptian story. So we'll see how that works out. Ooh, when I, oh, man, I love me some good Egyptology stories. Oh, oh, oh man. Yeah, yeah, keep me posted on that. And for my money, Pro Se is one of the best publishers of modern pulp. Tommy Hancock and company over there do amazing work and here i am starting to use the word amazing again and like i said recently i've been accused of using that word way too many times in a podcast but man it's just amazing <laughs> yeah pro se is a spectacular place they really produce some incredible writers uh my friend uh, teal is a member of that group i mean we have some really great writers that work with them and um tommy has a few of us mine included we're actually getting our own lines of books so so there'll be some stuff under frank's world which is a part of pro se so it's kind of cool now did that happen since the last time i've had you on the show I, I i think i've mentioned it but i don't know if we've actually spoken about it you've basically got your own imprint now over at pro se press or or is it pro se pro se press yeah, Pro Se uh, Press, Pro Se Productions. Uh, yeah. yeah, I have my own imprint. It's called Frank's World. Uh, there's a few of us who have them. You know, can only hope it works out. We're going to have a couple of them come. Uh, two or three books are coming out of mine this year, supposedly from Pro Se under Frank's World. And I have uh, two or three books with them that are not under mine, that are under Pro Se. One is a modern Dracula story that's part of a big monster universe Tommy created with uh, public domain monsters. So that'll be kind of fun to read. Uh, and another was uh, a modern take on pulp heroes and villains. So I wrote a Dr. Satan, who is one of my favorite pulp villains. Yeah. I love Dr. Satan. He's just so ridiculously nuts. And I, he always has these two very odd assistants. And um, because this is taking place in the modern day, I'm, I gave him two new assistants that are even weirder than his original two, which um, one was like a like half man, half ape kind of character. And one was a legless giant, like a giant human being, but he had no legs. So he'd move around on his hands. <laughs> you know, I don't know, know where Pearl Ernst got these ideas, but I loved it. So I created a couple of very odd 
uh, ones that uh, this married old married couple who are pretty deadly themselves. Uh, and they might remind you of characters in a way I realized after I wrote it that I kind of based them on Fred and Ethel Mertz. <laughs> <laughs> It's like where a writer's brain goes, and I didn't even realize it until after I said I read it. It's like, oh god, what did I do here? <laughs> so there's that, and I have a not my own my first nonfiction book. I wrote a nonfiction book that Tommy's going to publish on the Japanese series character Zatoichi, the Blind Swordsman. Okay, I remember you posting about that. I was wondering if that was something that was going to come to fruition. That's wonderful news, man. Yeah, I hope it works out. It's uh, kind of, an, uh, you know, talks about all 26 of his movies, as well as some of the remakes that followed years later after uh, Shintaro Katsu, the hero and uh, main actor, and he actually became the producer of it, uh, passed away. I also wrote about, you know, the people that remade it, like Takeshi Kitano made one that was just wonderful, and a couple of others, and also some comics and other things, like the uh, Yosagi Yojimbo uh, comic series by Stan Sakai. He actually, uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of that series. I am. All right, well, for those of you in the audience listening that don't know about it, it's a series of comics that... Uh, Stan Sakai is one of the great writers and artists of uh, the modern age, created about a anthropomorphic world, these animals, in ancient Japan. And the main character is kind of based on Miyamoto Musashi, the great swordsman, and he's a rabbit, which Yusagi is what it means, rabbit, rabbit bodyguard is the Yojimbo means. And at one point, he meets actually a blind swordsman, a boar known as Zadoino. And uh, I got permission to write about the story in my book from Stan Sakai and his people. So I was very glad that Sakai Sensei actually agreed to that. He has a reverence for Japanese cinema. He's Japanese himself, and he loves Zadoichi. So I'm glad he gave me that permission to put his stuff in my book. Right on. Yeah, I'm familiar with that character because didn't it cross over with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles at one point? Yosagi Jimbo, yes, he did. He absolutely did. And I believe Stan Sakai actually was in charge of that whole production period there. So he, he's a he's a pretty spectacular human being. He's a very kind and decent person, but he's also one of the best comic people in the business ever. So he's a really spectacular person. I'm really grateful that his people wrote me back and gave me permission to do that. Right on, man. Yeah. Uh, the Zadoichi, for those of you who don't know, is a blind swordsman in Japan. Uh, he's not a samurai. He's actually low class because he is blind. And he's a gangster and a gambler. And he basically goes from place to place solving problems. And he's uh, very famous for this sword cane that he would pull out and kill multiple people in quick fights. They're, they're a lot of fun. And he crossed over with um, The One-Armed Swordsman, which was a Chinese production starring Jimmy Wang Yu. And he actually had an appearance by Toshiro Mufuni, the great Japanese actor, one of the greatest of all time, called uh, Zadoichi Meets Yojimbo. So that was pretty awesome stuff. There are a few holes in my movie-watching background, and a lot of Japanese cinema falls into that, or I guess... 
doesn't since there are holes, but uh, <laughs> there are quite a few. <laughs> like yeah, um, the Zodawachi films, uh, you know, samurai films, kung fu, well, kung fu is not Japanese, but uh, yeah, I mean, all that Asian cinema, unless there's a giant monster involved, I know very little about. So I'm eager to read your book, man. That's going to be fun to, to dive into and learn more. Yeah, I'm kind of um, bananas about Sadoichi. All 26 movies, uh, um, people are always making jokes about uh, the fact that it's an odd week when I don't watch one of them. <laughs> There's, I have all 26 of the movies and some of the remakes as well, so I have a pretty ac- easy access to them. So, yeah, they're, they're pretty amazing. And um, the actor who played Zadoichi Shintaro Katsu, he was at one point making three series at the same time. He was that kind of popular in Japan. And he was able to get his brother working too. His brother, his older brother was an actor and martial artist who became known as the lone wolf, which has six movies that are some of the most popular uh, video rentals, like in the eighties and nineties and the early video days known as uh, the Shogun assassin movies. So they, you know, this is a, it's a whole area of film that um, American audiences don't know too much about, except from video rental. And I decided to write this book on the Zadoichi series just because it's my favorite of the bunch. I don't know why. I can't explain why because there's so many good ones out there. I mean, Akira Kurosawa made a lot of them, but he's my favorite. So the the Lone Wolf thing, though, didn't they just? That that's a Star Wars thing, right? With like the Mandalorian, and I'm just, I'm just, yeah. It's based on yes, that's I'm just a, they based the Mandalorian. You're a hundred thousand percent right. I, no, uh, it's it's it, 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 it is it is it was a um it was a manga series, a very popular manga series for many years, and uh, Shintaro Katsu under Katsu Productions bought the rights to make them as movies, and he made these six movies starring his brother. And a child who played the son, Daigoro, and what it was is the the hero was a samurai who has to become an assassin for political reasons. I'm not going to give you that because that's not where we're here. And he goes on the road with his baby cart that is basically done up like a James Bond vehicle. It has weapons and all sorts of cool stuff in it. And he and his son just go from place to place and have these amazing bloody fights. And one of the reasons these six movies work so very, very well is because the actor was a professional martial artist before he became an actor. So when he draws a sword, you actually really, really believe it. He was in two of these Zadoichi movies. And when he draws a sword in each of them, he's just so good. You can't believe what you're seeing. And he ended up a star himself to the point where... He played in even some American productions as a Japanese uh, gangster boss. So, you know, really cool stuff. There's a, it's a whole world out there of Chinese and Japanese films that a lot of people don't know about, including horror movies. Some of them are a total blast, like the Mr. Vampire series with uh, Wam Ching Ying. I mean, these are a whole series of these movies about the hopping vampires. And the first one is the best because it has a lot of comedy in it, too. And I, I know I was intentionally trying to be kind of clueless and facetious when I mentioned The Mandalorian, but these films influence everything from westerns, spaghetti westerns, science fiction. They, they have a far reach. So even if I haven't seen a lot of the Lone Wolf movies or the Zodawatching movies, I'm familiar with their themes because I've seen them 
be the basis for so many other amazing stories that I love. What's the Bruce Willis film? Uh, Last Man Standing? Is that the mm-hmm. kind of sort of see? And that's based on or inspired by some Japanese cinema. And it's it's uh, actually it's that it's a very circular thing. Mm-hmm. That is based on the same movie that A Fistful of Dollars is based on, exactly. which is Yojimbo. Yep. But Yojimbo was a little bit inspired by Dashiell Hammett's Red Harvest. <laughs> so it's a very circular kind of thing. The only difference was Akira Kurosawa, when he did Yojimbo with Toshiro Mifune, had no problem saying this is what his inspiration was. When the people in, in Italy decided to create Fistful of Dollars, they just didn't bother to give any accrediting. So they ended up having to give $75,000 in credit to Akira Kurosawa. So it was like this whole thing feeds on itself, but you got to be smart enough to give credit where credit is due. Right. And I've said this before on the show. Everything is a remix. Something always comes from something. And, you know, I know I mentioned The Mandalorian a second ago. If you don't watch that and see shots that are almost identical to things that John Ford was doing in his westerns or things that you'd see with Lone Wolf and Cub or whatever, then you're missing out. And that is totally not what we're here to talk about today. So I'm good. (laughs) We got to jump. We don't even have to do a segue. We just got to jump way the heck off of this. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So we're here to talk about a film that Frank adores and has been, to put it bluntly. Yeah. Okay. Pestering's nice. Okay. That's, that's probably a nicer word than I was coming up with to talk to me about (laughs) this film. And because we are in the middle of satanic rites of January, I figured this was the perfect time to finally shut Frank up and have him come on to talk about Hammer's 1968 film, The Devil Rides Out, with the masterful Christopher Lee and a handful of other actors and actresses that also do a spot-on, top-notch job. Now, this is a film that I did talk about with Scott Morris and Casey Criswell back in the day when I was doing the 1951 Down Place podcast. Funny how that one keeps coming up, the podcast that kind of sort of pod faded. It's come up a couple of times in conversation here on the show and off mic with people. So maybe we'll bring that back later this year. We'll see. But it's been a while since I've seen this one. In fact, the last time I watched The Devil Rides Out was when we talked about it on 1951 Down Place. So it was nice to revisit the film and to have Frank on board to kind of guide me through the Dennis Wheatley-isms is going to be a treat because he's one of your favorite authors, right? He certainly is. And I have friends for 10, 15, 20 years who've been listening to me yammer on about this for that long. So I think they're going to be grateful that I can finally stop talking about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Win Scott Eckerd, Chuck Loridans, guys like that, you know, John Smalley, Chris Paul Carey. They've been hearing me talk about Dennis Wheatley for, I don't know how many years at this point. And so they're finally going to get to hear me talking about it and hopefully stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, no, when it comes to these amazing movies, though, I I mean, can't help but talk about them over and over and over again. I mean, how many, I'm never going to stop talking about Creature. 
you know, Creature from the Black Lagoon, that's my jam. I'm never going to shut up about that film. And The Devil Rides Out, I can tell listeners, Frank won't shut up about it. So I figured let's finally get him on mic and get him talking about the film. I want to dive into it, but I'd like to learn a little bit more about Dennis Wheatley. I know very little about the guy other than I know he wrote a lot of occult fiction, supernatural fiction, that sort of thing. Well, Dennis Wheatley was a very interesting human being. He led a very old school kind of life. He was born to a pretty well-off family. They had a a wine merchant business that did pretty well for themselves. And he was in World War I. He was actually a soldier in World War I, and he was gassed. He had a chlorine gas. He had to be invalided. But he was in some battles, too. He was a brave man. And around the 1930s, the business had to be sold because it wasn't going to – it was going downhill. So he decided to take his chance at writing. And he wrote a lot of – more of, most of his books are actually adventure and mystery fiction. He did a much more of that than a cult, but he's better known for a cult. What it was is he wrote this character called um, the Duke de Richelieu, who's the hero of uh, a series of books and this particular movie, The Devil Rides Out, better known as The Devil's Bride. And he started him out in um, first a mystery called Three Inquisitive People, I think, is the name of it exactly off the top of my head. And that didn't get published for several years, but he wrote him in The Forbidden Territory, which was an adventure where he and three other characters go into Soviet Russia. Now, to stop there for a second, Dennis Wheatley was had some very unusual views on things. And one of the most unusual views was he really desperately believed that communism was was a satanic conspiracy. I'm not joking there. Okay. He really? Yeah. I, hey, all right. I can't actually say anything positive about communism, and I won't. I'm not a fan myself. <laughs> I think it's it murdered millions of people and terrible, terrible. But I didn't think that much. At the same time, and he had some views that would not be very good at this day and age uh, towards uh, people, he desperately despised the Nazis. Okay. He was one of the earliest haters of Nazis. In fact, one of the characters in this movie and the series is a character named Simon Ahrens, who is a Jewish character, one of the early ones in British literature, who is very heroic. He would not have him in any way negative. He made him a very heroic character. And the characters in this movie, as well as the Richelieu series, are based on the Three Musketeers. The Duke is based on Athos, who is best known. I'm going to use the 70s version because it's the one I love the best as the Oliver Reed character in that movie. Okay. Uh, Athos was a well-off person who was not living uh, the luxurious life of the noble for his own reasons. And that is part of the Duke's story. Porthos, the very strong, heroic, wealthy character, was in this movie really one of the main heroes of uh, of it, played by Leon Green, who uh, Rex Van Ryn. But, the, you know, I'll come back to that. Forget it. I'm just going to keep going. Um, the uh, Aramis character, the thoughtful, very dangerous, intelligent character was Simon Aaron, played by Patrick Mower. And the heroic, decent, well-thought-out person, as well as very uh, romantic, is Richard, who is played by Paul Eddington, best known to people these days as from Yes, Prime Minister and Yes, Minister. 
He was the main character, Jim Hacker. So that's what this series is based on. And what apparently what Dennis Wheatley wanted to do is he wanted to take it, his book a different direction because he, he realized there was a lot of adventure fiction, a lot of mystery fiction. So he thought of doing a cult. So he decided to investigate it by studying some people. And then he met and had a conversation with and read the books of the very famous Aleister Crowley. He actually had a, din- a lunch with the man and the uh, Aleister Crowley, who was, I believe, in his late 50s, gave him a copy of his book signed as well as a picture of himself signed The Great Beast 666. <laughs> so he got a lot of grounding in this stuff and he decided to create a series of books based with that, uh, this occult world. And the Duke de Richelieu became a very powerful magician on the good side. And all of his books from then on, even the, uh, he had a book, a series called the Roger books. Uh, they were called Roger book. I'm sorry. I'm saying it wrong. Roger book was a Napoleonic intelligence officer. He had another series set in world war two. Uh, every one of them had at least one occult story. Plus he wrote, um, at least one or two books on the occult world that were nonfiction. Okay. So yeah, he, he was a very unusual individual during world war two. He actually worked in a division of intelligence where their job was to create false trails for the Nazis to create false intelligence that would cause the Nazis to not know where the allies were striking. And he was good friends with both Christopher Lee and Ian Fleming who created uh, James Bond. So he, he had a very unusual life. He lived to the to the 1970s. Um, and at the time of his life, he was one of the most published writers in the world with like about 80 million books published. Wow. Yes. He had like 70 books he wrote and about 80 million copies sold. And in this day and age, uh, there's about me and about seven others who remember who he is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like I said, I know very little about the man. I, I've done a little bit of digging and research and all that. And I knew about his relationship with Christopher Lee. And Christopher Lee himself will tell you, or would tell anybody, that he's the reason why Hammer took on the project. Oh, he certainly was, because he was friends with him. He was friends with Dennis Wheatley, and he loved the books. And in fact, in his later years, he wished he could do a remake of The Devil Rides Out because the Duke, by the time of The Devil Rides Out, was in his early 60s, whereas Christopher Lee was quite a bit younger during this movie. And he would have liked to have done the stories in a more age-appropriate way. He, was, he had a great reverence for uh, Dennis Wheatley's work. And yes, he's entirely the reason this, this was taken on by uh, Hammer. But there was also another point was that The Devil Rides Out was considered one of the biggest occult stories written of its time. In fact, uh, James Hilton, who was a very famous writer of that period, actually called it one of the best horror movies since Dracula. Dennis Wheatley was known as the prince of thriller writers by many in the business those days. So he wrote a, he wrote some amazing series. His Gregory Salas stories are the ones I was referring to. He he does World War II adventures, and one of his stories called They Use Dark Forces involved espionage and occult involving Nazis and things. So there's always it, it was always present. He had short story collections, uh, 
And they there was one movie made of, with the Duke uh, called The Forbidden Territory. But uh, the problem with that was is that when it was made as a movie by Alfred Hitchcock, they changed the name of the Duke to Sir Charles uh, Farrington or something like that. I don't understand why they did that. So that's you know, the Hollywood business, I guess, or whatever it was at that time. I'm, I'm sorry, what movie was that? The The Forbidden Territory was made in the 30s by Alfred Hitchcock. Wow. That's, that's the first story of the... Uh, of the Duke de Richelieu story. Yeah, yeah. I had no idea that Hitchcock tackled that. That's interesting. Okay. Well, most people really thought originally back at that time of Dennis Wheatley as a thriller writer. Mm-hmm. He became, over the course of time, more of an occult writer. In fact, to such a degree that he was able to create a reprint line just using his name. Nothing he wrote called the Dennis Wheatley Black Magic Collection. And I actually read several of them when I was living in England for about six months, I got to read a whole bunch of his books. Anytime I saw the, the name Dennis Wheatley, I grabbed it. And sometimes it wasn't anything he wrote, but I got to read a good horror novel. So it wasn't a problem either way. Okay. Well, there you yeah. go. So that's a little on Dennis Wheatley, probably more than you expected or needed. No, no, this is fascinating. <laughs> I, I love hearing about writers and learning about writers that are into the, this kind of stuff. I, I find and I've talked about this on the show and, and my own writing reflects this and your writing reflects this. I, I love the idea of people going out fighting supernatural evil. That's just cool. I love that, that concept. And this is a British flavored version of that. And to learn a little bit more about what Dennis Wheatley did and, and how he was inspired by or motivated by some of the things that he was experiencing is just fascinating to me. He was a very interesting writer. He had a very interesting life. And um, the Duke only fought the uh, occult like three times, I believe. I know he did it. He did it first in The Devil Rides Out. He also did it in Strange Conflict and uh, Gateway to Hell. I don't believe he fought any other time. Some of his stories are set in the man's past because the Duke, we're going to jump now. This will bring us to the movie itself. The Duke de Richelieu was a French nobleman who was born in uh, Russia in the Tsarist period in the 1800s. His father had left because he didn't like the uh, Republican government. He was, a, he was a royalist, and the Duke came back to France to become an army officer. And the reason he doesn't live in there is because he was part of a conspiracy to put the th- royalty back on the throne, which is a running theme in uh Wheatley's work. He was a very conservative man and he desperately believed in royalty and monarchies and things like that. And most of his stories are adventures that take place in historical period where the Duke is adventuring in different parts of the world, in Vienna, in Turkey. He was a soldier, a professional soldier of fortune. And while he was doing this, he learned about the occult world. Mm-hmm. And he met up with these younger friends of his uh, who became like the Four Musketeers. So the modern and the old stories would come out over the period of, uh, well, he was writing the character from 1933 to 1970. So, uh, but he wrote a lot of books in between those. So the Duke came in to become one of his most popular characters. They all sort of linked together in a sense because 
he sort of created over the course of time one of the first shared universe of his own stuff. So the villain of The Devil Rides Out is a character named Mokata. And Mokata later was kind of retroactively placed into this worldwide satanic conspiracy called the Brotherhood of the Ram, who fought and dealt with other heroes that really created. It's a larger, bigger conspiracy that came out of this. I don't know if he actually planned that from the start. I have a strong suspicion because of the way he entered the occult world as one of his earliest books that he hadn't planned on it, but he didn't realize that the book itself was going to sell so insanely well. I mean, it it was one of the best sellers of its time and you have to run with what works, I guess. Well, uh, he did, like I said, he had a friendship with Christopher Lee. Christopher Lee brought this to hammer. They produced the film. They brought in, Terrence Fisher to direct, which I think was the perfect choice. Again, referencing 1951 Down Place, Terrence Fisher was somebody, all three of us on that show loved his work. Terrence Fisher treated his subject matter as if they were adult fairy tales, so there is that sense of kind of unreality, just barely hanging over all of these things, while there are still some solid adventure and action and horrific things happening on screen. And I think Fisher really tapped into that. I I believe Terrence Fisher was a somewhat religious man. I don't really know for sure. I I could be misremembering some of the research we did years ago for that podcast, but he, he did treat this evil, the, the, the occult forces in the devil rides out seriously with respect And I think that's what makes the movie a little bit more effective than a lot of the other films where, oh, we're going up against the devil. What are we going to do? You know what I mean? Oh, it's absolutely true. He kept he he, fortunately they got Richard Matheson as the writer. Yes. And, you know, anybody who knows anything about movies or books, uh, Richard Matheson, there's just nobody was in that man's class. I mean, he created so much over the course of time i mean his novels alone i am legend the shrinking man <laughs> i mean hell house holy lord that movie scared the heck out of me what dreams may come I, mm-hmm. I, his work with the twilight zone the incredible shrinking man <laughs> the pit and the pendulum still scares the heck out of me you know he adapted burn which burn uh, the, 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 oh, you cannot you can never go Uh, long enough with all the things that Richard Matheson did. And he synthesized this book, taking out some of the parts that would have stretched it and made it probably hard to follow because there, there is a deeper reason behind Mokata's actions. Mokata being played by the wonderful Charles Gray. (laughs) He was so Mm -hmm. wonderful. Oh yeah. Now, those of you who don't know Charles Gray, Charles Gray is best known to most audiences as the narrator in Rocky Horror Picture Show, The Man with No Neck. Well, those of us who actually heard that line. He was also <laughs> he also played two really great parts. He was Blofeld in Diamonds Are Forever. Oh, yeah. He was very good in that. And he played Blofeld's like a double in that. And he also played Sherlock Holmes' smarter, older brother, Mycroft Holmes, in the Jeremy Brett series. And I don't think I've ever seen anybody that matched him uh, in his first appearance in that was in the Greek interpreter, the first appearance of Mycroft. He's sitting on like a ladder watching outside 
And he and Jeremy Brett are talking about this man in the street and doing observations. And he's correcting Jeremy Brett's Sherlock Holmes. And it's totally believable. Just his delivery had that plummy British accent made him spectacular and possibly the most evil, believable villain in satanic movies I've ever seen. So, yeah, he was absolutely spectacular. And Mokada in the book is a French former priest who turned to a become a satanic priest. And he has a larger plan in mind that we'll go into later while we're talking about the movie itself. Sure, sure. So Charles Gray played Mycroft yeah, at one point. It was, and it was. Oh, it's okay. I have, and, I, I and, have something coming. Every time I do this, I find some so something so obscure and bizarre. I'm just telling you this in advance for the first time. Something can, that I'm connecting to this so advanced and ridiculous that you're going to be like blown away. Okay. Well, we'll see. I've come to know you over the years. We'll see if you. Yeah, but this well. one, this one even surprised me. Okay. Well, I was going to say Charles Gray played Mycroft, but then I'm sorry, but Christopher Lee also played Mycroft, which is kind of cool that there's this weird connection there at one point. So I thought that was kind of neat. He really played a version of Mycroft. Right. You see, Mycroft Holmes, while smarter than Sherlock in every version is supposed to be a very heavy, lazy man, though secretly not. But he's a, the kind of person who'd rather just give a theory than actually have to involve the legwork that Sherlock was so famous for. Right. And you didn't really see that as much in the private life of Sherlock Holmes, where Christopher Lee played Mycroft Holmes as sort of an intelligence chief, which in later years, many writers have started doing that with Mycroft, which kind of was suggested too, because Sherlock Holmes in the original series said that at times Mycroft was the British government. So, you know, take it as you will. Ricks, do you believe in evil? That's an idea. Do you believe in the power of darkness? That's a superstition. Now there you are wrong. The power of darkness is more than just a superstition. It is a living force which can be tapped at any given moment of the night. Why? On one night of one year, should these people live in mortal fear? Christopher Lee as de Richelieu, who knows he must fight the devil's power to the death. Eyes, eyes, once filled with love, are consumed with fear. For Tanith is now promised to the devil. Listen carefully to what I say. This is Makata, the devil's chief disciple. Your will is leaving you, slipping away. Devil's Bride, from bestseller author Dennis Wheatley's The Devil Rides Out, fills the screen with a special kind of visual terror. On your feet quickly. Back to back. Joint hands. You will hear his evil. You will feel his evil. You will see his evil. We 
once catch sight of his face. So the story opens in 1929, and Rex Van Ryn, this American banker, who is one of the four heroes we discussed earlier, comes in and he's talking to the Duke, Christopher Lee, and how their friend Simon Aaron's hasn't been around for several months. And they go to see him in this big house in Surrey. And that's when you meet Simon, who is a wealthy banker. He's having a party with these very odd characters. And one of the odd characters is this uh, upper class talking man named Mokata, played by Charles Gray. Now, Rex is played by a man named Leon Green, who I've seen over the years in like carry on movies and stuff like that. But his voice is not actually his in this movie. It was dubbed in by a man named Patrick Allen, who was married to the one of the lead actresses in this movie. Uh, you know, it's a weird connections I'm seeing through this whole thing. Why, why did Hammer do that? I know they I dubbed know. a lot of their women. I, I know they dubbed a lot of the women in the Hammer Starlets. But yeah, why? I don't. But like, have you ever heard him speak in anything else? Did he really have a terrible have. voice? He doesn't have a bad voice. He doesn't have anything that would work. I mean, maybe his accent was too British and they couldn't make it American enough. But I don't really think of it as that would have been that important. Uh, I I didn't understand. Now, Patrick Allen is one of those voices that you've heard 10,000 times. If you've ever heard a British movie being narrated in the beginning, yeah. you probably heard Patrick Allen. That's who he was. Yeah. He was very famous for that. And he was married to this woman, Sarah Lawson, who plays Richard's wife, Marie, in this film. It's a weird thing that they did that dubbing. The Duke kind of suspects what's going on because he's listening in on the conversations and he <laughs> get this hint of this weirdness of these people. And he sort of convinces Simon to show them his uh, his uh, where his telescope is. Upstairs. Okay, his observatory. And okay, observatory. I couldn't think of the thing more. Thank you. I want to I want to cut in here because one, yes. when the Duke is wandering around the party, you know, the Duke is is for lack of a better term, a badass. I don't try to swear too much on the show, but, no, but that's what that's he is. That's the only really way to say it. So he's wandering around this party. Right before he does this, though, he, he already knows what's going on. Now, I've been talking with uh, a couple of game designers, role-playing game designers lately, and I apologize to any non-gamer listeners out there, but the Christopher Lee character, the Duke de Richelieu character, rolls incredibly high on his observation checks because he knows exactly what's going on rather quickly. We're about to be asked to leave, so before we do that, uh, why don't you try to listen in and see what's going on? And he just kind of wanders around the party, picking up little bits of pieces here and there of information. And then you said he convinces him to show him the observatory? He doesn't uh, really convince no. him so much as makes him. He sort of says, well, let, let me see it. I want to see your telescope. Let's go. And just kind of races upstairs before anybody can stop it. <laughs> like, dude, but we have to great. back up slightly on your theme. Uh -huh. Now, Rex, who is with uh, the Duke, is at the same party. And he immediately rolls poorly. Oh, he oh gets, yeah. He gets totally entranced by this woman, this character, Tanith who in the story he has seen many times in the past. He's traveling like he's in South America. He sees her riding a horse as he's going driving past, uh, you know, and that's kind of the setup. These two have seen each other over the course of years, and he immediately has this connection, and he stops paying attention to 
anything else that's going on in the party because he's after the pretty girl played by this uh, very attractive French actress, Nike Arrighi. I never could pronounce the woman's name and I apologize for getting it wrong. N-I-K-E-A-R-R-I-G-H-I. Your guess is as good as mine. So they, yeah, he basically doesn't convince him so much. You're correct. He basically <laughs> just says, well, let me see it and goes. Yep. <laughs> and you get into this really very elaborate room with this marble floor with these astrological signs in a big pentagram kind of thing on the floor that even even somebody without a clue would be like, well, this is a little odd. This is weird. Yeah, this is different. And it has a big, big, beautiful brass telescope there. And the Duke immediately is figuring stuff out faster than anybody when he hears a sound, a scratching sound. And he opens this basket and there is these two chickens in there, a black cock and a white hen. And he immediately stops hiding that he's uh, dangerous. He turns around and grabs Sam Simon and, and <laughs> starts shaking. Him. He clocks him to knock him out and get him under well, control. first he shakes him. First he <laughs> shakes him and, and, and calls him a fool for messing basically with the black arts. And he tells him he'd rather see him dead than practice black magic. And Simon stands up to him. That's one of the things that's, that stayed in the book is that Simon doesn't even blink. Most people, and I'm probably including myself, Christopher Lee is grabbing and shaking you. You're going to probably think twice about it. But yeah. this, this guy just stands and looks at him without a second thought. And yes, like you said, the Duke clocks him, knocks him right the heck out. How much of that do you think was Simon standing up to him versus Makata kind of being in control here? I honestly, Simon in the story is a very brave character. So okay. I think that's pure Simon at that point. Okay. I think... Some of it, though, not thinking twice about it, came from the fact that Mokata had been living with him for a good long time and Mokata had power over him. Okay. Which comes now. So they run off. Uh, Rex knocks, uh, punches out a servant and they drive off in, <laughs> uh, in the Duke's really expensive, awesome looking limousine, basically. Right. With the coolest way to communicate from passenger to driver i want i just that 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 tube or whatever yeah it's a big tube you don't even have to see the person out front it's like wow this is this is living uh there was actually i don't know remember the name of the car but it was a very rare expensive vehicle like the kind like uh you know how the bugattis these days are the expensive ridiculous car he was he had those that was his car at the time it was the, the Bugatti of the 20s. So <laughs> uh, they drive to the Duke's home. And this is where the Duke's magical side comes out. He uses some hypnosis on Simon and puts a cross around his neck. Now, in the book, which was written, obviously, in 34, it's a swastika, but the Eastern type of swastika. Which is okay. a symbol of light in Eastern religions. But because this movie is taking place after World War II, the use of the swastika as a positive sign could not be used. So they used a cross, which, you know, it, it fits the hammer ethos of the time anyway. 
So it, it worked. I'd like to interject real quick because uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. the car and I thought, hey, there's a resource online. I can look up cars. So I went, to, I went to the Cars movie database, <laughs> which is a there's real thing. There's also a firearm movie database. There is. There is. Uh, and according to the Internet Movie Cars database, Christopher Lee's car in this is a 1933 Rolls Royce 20, whatever that is, a Rolls okay, Royce. Well, so in the books, it, he had an even more spectacular car. Uh, he drove, uh, I don't remember the name of it, but the car that he had, I looked it up many years ago, was the most expensive car. But you don't have to go further. It's a Rolls Royce in that move uh, in the movie. It's Rolls-Royce. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> enough, man. That's enough. You're, 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 you're there. Well, the, the Duke is a very wealthy character in this Oh, series. yeah, yeah. And I'll make sure there's a link to the Devil Rides Out uh, listing of the Internet Movie Cars database in the show notes because there's some pretty cool cars in this film. Yeah, they have a lot of beautiful cars. It's like if you are if you're even have a slight interest just in the outside of cars because I couldn't care less about the inside of them, the, the engine, I mean, these cars are just beautiful. They really oh, yeah. did a great job with them. And – so he hypnotizes Simon and sends him to bed, which is such a British thing to do. You know, Americans would would hypnotize him and then, you know, tie him to the bed or something like that. You know, no, just just go to bed. Okay, you're done. Uh, and the Duke is then spends his time talking to Rex and convincing him the black magic is real. And Rex has the natural human reaction of, oh, stop it. You know, give me a break. It's not real. People may believe it, but it's not real. Meanwhile, upstairs, Simon wakes sort of like in a trance and starts strangling himself with the chain of the cross. The next scene, the manservant, who is uh, a character in the later books like this, brings the cross back to the Duke, because saying it was strangling, his face was almost black, and Simon gets away. So basically, they have to save Simon. Now, here's where Richard Matheson correctly cut the story down. He just made it. They have to save Simon and this girl, Tannin, because mm-hmm. they're going to become Satanists. They're going to sell their soul to Satan shortly. In the book, the reason Mokata wanted them was... They had a particular connection to numerology that could lead him to a talisman of great power that was last used by Attila the Hun when he was romping all over the world and taking over everything. That's Mokata's plan. Oh, (laughs) yeah, there's a bigger story here. I know numbers come up a little bit at the very beginning of the film because when Lee and company show up that increases the number of the people at the party beyond the 13 that they need for whatever ritual they were going to do. So numbers right. do come up briefly, but that's about as far as that goes. So interesting. Right. They kept that out because it's uh, it's good for reading, but it would not work in a visual sense. And nobody understood that better than Richard Matheson, and he wisely cut things down there. So this talisman is based in Egyptian mythology of the death of Osiris. Osiris was killed by his evil brother Set and torn to pieces. And one piece of Osiris's dead body when he was reconstituted by his wife Isis was not found. I don't think I really have to explain which piece. <laughs> Yeah, this is a family show. We won't go into that. But you understand my implication. And it's known as the Talisman of Set. 
<laughs> okay, I'm, yeah, um, yeah, okay. I'm just going to gloss over that. All right. Yeah, well, that, that's, uh, that's what my intention was. And that's what Mokata is wanting in the book. In the story, he's just a Satanist and he needs these two under it. And Mokata has a lot of power that we see over his people. Mm-hmm. So basically, they have to rescue Simon and Tanith before they sell their soul to the devil. Rex tries to save the girl Tanith, and Mokata has power over her at a Disney, tries actually kidnapping her, sort of. Mm-hmm. Gets her in the car and says, no, nah, I'm going to drive you to my friends Richard and Marie. And she tries to turn the car around, but he gets her there. And the minute he gets out of the car after coming to Richard and Marie's home with their daughter, she just jumps over to the other side of the car and drives off. Yep. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, this is definitely early 20s because, uh, you know, in the modern day and age, people would not buy this. But in that time, it, I guess it kind of worked because cards were not exactly the regular thing. He borrows Richard's car, follows her, and... Mokata uses some power on him to destroy his windshield, and he ends up getting into an accident, destroying another beautiful car, probably a rose. I love this moment, this whole sequence in the film. While I do question the idea, and I think I've brought this up in the past, I do question the motivations behind, hey, there's a Satanist coming after this woman. I'm going to take him to my friend's house where their daughter lives. Now, I do question that decision. But beyond that, the chase, and even leading up to all this, when she tries to jump out of the moving car to get away from him. uh, But the chase afterwards, he's driving after her, and Makata is doing his woohoo on him makes the windshield go opaque so he can't see while he's driving so he has to punch through the glass to see where he's going and it's just really cool and one of the interesting parts was that mokata when tanith is in richard's car is talking to her through the mirror and they got charles gray's very unusual looking eyes like just looking out of the uh, out of the driver's mirror at Tanith and talking to her in this whispery voice. Uh, it was it was a really great use of simplistic uh, special effects that were it really worked so well when it, they did it. It, it works so- it works well and it was something that was kind of set up earlier because when Lee is hypnotizing him to his buddy earlier, he's using a mirror to do that as well. So we're we're given already right. the knowledge that mirrors have power reflections have power they're a way to control and i think that's a really neat way to kind of set that up and then pay off again later because you've got Makata in the rearview mirror there's always a lot of consistency when it comes to the occult in mm-hmm. dennis wheatley's books because he was a devotee of studying it even though he desperately despised it he was interested in studying it now richard as i said earlier was played by paul eddington who was a very good actor who really had one of those faces that never changed throughout his entire life. He only got a little more lined and jowly, but he had this the same look for most of his life. And in the 80s, he was in a very funny series of TV shows called Yes Minister, where he played a very clueless conservative member of parliament who was a new minister. And uh, he then as a, it, it was a jokingly uh, charity done. They made him prime minister, and it was so well received, they actually made another series called Yes, Prime Minister. So Paul Eddington plays Richard, who is a very heroic kind of figure. And his wife, 
uh, Sarah Lawson, she's still around. She's a regular working actress. And I said she was married to Patrick Allen. And you get a brief glimpse of their daughter, Peggy, who in the book is named Fleur. Uh, Peggy and Fleur, precocious daughters who about the correct age that you see there. And yeah, I questioned every time I saw it, well, why would you bring it to a place with a child when we're dealing with Satanists? But okay, that's the, you know, that's what he did. That's, uh, you know, we're just going to take it as Dennis Wheatley had a little, uh, decided to do that. Well, the character itself, too. I mean, does he, yes, he agrees with Christopher Lee or the Duke that, yeah, okay, there are some things going on here. It's a little weird, a little hinky. And yeah, I, I'm on board, but it's a pretty lady. I'm distracted. So, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, basically that's uh, uh, Rex really Rex is most interested in Tanith more than anything else. He finally the way it comes off, he almost is agreeing to help the Duke save Simon because he can get close to pretty lady. <laughs> you know, there, there is a little bit of that present in that. I do agree with you. Well, later on in the film, too, when he's. <laughs> yeah, that's coming. We'll get there. Oh we'll get, man, almost, just oh. it's it's very funny. I love yeah. that part. <laughs> so they know where the location basically is of uh, everything that's happening, and so the Duke and Rex decide to stake out the uh, Simon's place, and they follow them to Salisbury Plain, where the satanic ceremony begins. In the book, it's there's much more intricate details that are it's kind of uh, played as a extreme denial of the uh, Roman Catholic ceremony. I won't go into the details; it's not important. In this, it comes off as very crazed. They're screaming, they're yelling, and Mokata Charles Gray is dressed in these really richly robes, and. Uh, Simon and Tanith are standing in regular clothes while everybody else is in these white robes and screaming and acting crazy. And the ceremony actually brings out a demon, the uh, goat of Mendes, uh, a demon that's like a goat's head and hands and body of a human. And, you know, it's evil. And they actually they did the most most realistic way of dealing with these situations they got in the car and just drove through the crowd <laughs> <laughs> you know there's been terrible stuff with that in real life but that's the most realistic instead of sneaking in and trying to take it nah they turned on the headlights and drove straight forward yeah yeah and uh, the duke uses a little bit of uh, magic to get rid of the demon and they drive off with Simon and Tanith. When I was giggling earlier uh, about Tanith and, you know, getting her involved in this and trying to save her. The reason I was giggling is because when they're plotting before they get in the car and drive through, when they're looking at them, they're like, okay, we got to save him. We got to save him. We got to save the girl too. Oh yeah. Well, she's not been baptized yet. She's still savable. And you can just see Christopher Lee roll his eyes. Well, we'll do what we can. You know, yes. just yes. that's not what we're problem, here for. <laughs> part of the, the problem in the book that actually makes it even more so that way is her first name in both is Tanith. And the Duke says, well, she's already done. She has her satanic name. It's Tanith, the moon goddess. And only later does Rex find out while he's still pursuing her. Oh, no, that's just her real name. She was born with a slightly unusual name. That's not her satanist name. You know, they, you know, but throughout it, it's, uh, you know, Rex is sort of, I'm interested in the pretty lady. Oh, yeah. You know? 
we next go back to Richard uh, and Marie's home, complete with their young daughter, where the Duke is going to fight off the evil. Again, he sends Tanith and Simon to bed, but this time with watchers. And Mokata tries to use some powers to have uh, Simon and Tanith kill their minders. See, the way this sets up is Mokata comes into their house. Mm-hmm. He comes like bringing back a car. It's like, well, this is was borrowed from you, and I'd like to speak to you for a little while. Well, it's it's quite arrogant, and I love that. He comes off like so uh, beyond everybody when he does this scene. It's such a tr- it needed somebody like a Charles Gray to pull it off. Oh yeah, I can't imagine anybody else playing that role. Yeah, there's very few people who could pull it off with that kind of a plum that just, you know, I'd just like to speak to you for a little while. I think that there's been some misunderstandings kind of way, whereas most people just close the door in their face. He just has his way and he convinces Marie to talk to him. And as he's talking to her, he's hypnotizing her. Mm-hmm. And as he's hypnotizing her, he's sending the two upstairs, Simon and Tanith to reach for knives, which just happen to be hanging on the walls, and kill the people watching them. And only when uh, he's startled do all of his powers break his concentration and everybody's back to normal. So Marie throws him out. Tanith realizes what she was doing, drops her knife, and runs from the house with Richard on her heels. And Simon falls back asleep. (laughs) <laughs> which seems to be Simon's role in this movie. That's right. Very important work to be done, sleeping. Yeah, it, it, you know, <laughs> I always said to a friend of mine when I saw this, it's like, this is one of the few acting jobs I think I could do. I could be asleep most of it. <laughs> <laughs> I could stand up to Christopher Lee, you know, in acting sense, and then put me to punch me out and put me to sleep. I can do that. <laughs> most of it is, is spent sleeping. So that's when the Duke is going to go full force onto fighting off Mokata, who's going to use power to stop them. Meanwhile, Tanith runs away, and Rex ignores everybody and follows her. And she's positive that she's almost going to kill you. I, you know, I can't do this. I have, I, I can't fight him. So instead of bringing her back to the man who is known to be the expert on this kind of stuff, he takes her into this barn and ties her up, and drops her into the straw, basically, and just standing and watching her. <laughs> Honestly, it, that's a very, I guess it's a kind of old school way of doing things, but I guess I'm just too modern a person. I always found that both in the book and the movie. It's like, why? <laughs> it's like, you, you, why wouldn't you bring her back to the one guy who might be able to save her? The Duke sets up this pentagram with this very elaborate ceremony that's, that Christopher Lee just does wonderfully. And oh, you can man. see a lot of versions of it online if you look for it. It's a very, a very interesting ceremony. And he has Simon, Richard, and Marie in this pentagram in this room. And basically, they just lay down in the pentagram waiting for something to happen. Which was, you know, it was an interesting choice, but it actually kind of worked. Because after a while, Richard is like, oh, this is just getting stupid. I want to drink. And Christopher (laughs) Lee does this really interesting speech where he convinces Richard to stay in the circle because he's afraid. So just could you do this for me? And uses the old school friend stuff thing to keep him there. But that's when things start to go bad. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
So you get these monsters basically coming. And now I am not a guy who's afraid of a lot of things, but there is one fear I have always had, and I doubt it'll ever change. Large spiders. Okay. (laughs) All right. Yeah. And well, the spider demon thing that comes into there, it was obviously shot up a close up of a real tarantula kind of creature. Mm Mm-hmm. And it creeps the crap out of me, excuse my language. (laughs) But I'm watching that and it's like, oh my God, I don't like this. And that's why I love this movie. Because it really gives me a genuine, true chill. Because it's hitting on one of my few genuine phobias. I know they're good for the environment and people, but they still still scare the crap out of me. (laughs) Fair enough. Tarantula size. you got to be big and hairy to scare me. Well, Okay. Yeah. yeah moving well, on. Um, <laughs> I, let's, let, let, let's not go. Let's not go. Yeah. 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 I, I didn't mean it in the in well, the to, sense. To be fair, a spider that size in this film, I think, would terrify anybody. Right, and it's genuinely terrifying. And to add to it, which was one of the Wheatley's best twists is the door to this living room opens, and the daughter is standing there. And the Duke knows it's not really the daughter. And she's played by an actress named uh, Rosalind Landor. Rosalind Landor moved to the United States. She was in Star Trek The Next Generation and a lot of a lot of TV and does voiceovers for um, audio books and like Macmillan and Disney. She's best known to me. She was in a very early episode of Star Trek The Next Generation when the writing was definitely off. And they had one culture based very much on Ireland, old school Ireland. And they had the one really attractive Irish woman who Riker would hook up with in that episode. And that's her. That was Rosalind Landor. Oh. And I remembered her. She was very attractive. And uh, they, they had a very over-the-top accent for her as well. And she was a really tough woman who was yelling at like her father and everybody and has a quick fling with Riker in that episode. That was what I remember her from. Okay. So she's still around doing her thing, apparently, on the, in the California area. And her reaction as a child was perfect. Because she obviously wasn't acting with a real giant-sized spider, but she looked actually genuinely scared. I don't know what they did to cause that, but she did a great job whether it was just (laughs) acting or they put a real spider in front of her. I don't know. But she looked genuinely scared. Meanwhile, while this is going on, Tanith is having the exorcist-style convulsions in the barn. And Rex is basically just standing there watching. And she then hypnotizes him he she locks eyes with him hypnotizes him forces him to release her and things start to happen after that so the duke fights off that and then the next one is the angel of darkness the angel of death it's played in a way that is done where it's a uh giant man in black armor, like knight in shining armor on a giant black horse. There was uh, some cheap special effects, unfortunately, that take a lot of people out of it during the scene with the angel of death with the horse. You know, they did a little bit of uh, bad editing at that point. Uh, I'm I'm always afraid to say, you know, I have to say because it's true. Uh, Yeah, that that whole bit. And that's 
That's been a bone of contention with people over the years, ever since this was released on Blu-ray in the UK, because they mm-hmm. did redo some of the effects here. They special editioned it. And yeah. I, and I didn't have a problem with that. Yeah. I really did. Because it smoothed it out. It, it had some, I have an old copy, but I've seen the new copy, and I don't have a problem with them doing it, because it was a very choppy, poor effect. And it, it takes some people who are not like fan, crazy fans like me a little out of it. So I don't really mind them doing that so much. You know, it is what it is. In the book, this is only the first step. There's a chase that goes through France and Greece, and there's all advent- a minor adventure in those two places, too. But that's not in the movie, which was smart because it would have mattered another two hours. And they find out where the ceremony is still happening, and they then go to this other house, the house that Tanith drove to when she was with Rex the first time. And they, they, they see the problem with a lot of satanic movies. Let's just take, like, say, The Devil's Reign or something like that. Is the the people that are doing these ceremonies are so over the top, screaming and growling and yelling. It's like, why would you listen to somebody like that? Uh, there's always an unbelievability. Whereas Charles Gray doesn't bat an eye. He's like, oh, well, you're here. Okay. It's like, you're <laughs> going to see this happen whether you like it or not. You know, <laughs> you know, it, the, the, there's this calm control about him with such d- divine, delicious evil that even people who consider all of this stuff very old school are always impressed by how de- how wonderfully evil and calm Charles Gray is, even when he's angry, even when he's angry, like when Marie broke his spell, he does it without ever really raising his voice or overacting. It's always this understated, very upper class English anger that is an an amusement. Because when he sees them come in, it's like, oh, you're here. You know, I don't really care. You can't do anything. I'm going to do this. Yeah. And the moment I warned you about (laughs) everybody then all of a sudden comes awake and they're back in the living room where they had fought off the giant spider and the, and all of that. And they're wondering if it was all a dream. They run Richard and Marie run off and bring in Peggy, but it was real because then in walks Tanith and Richard, because nobody ended up dying except Mokada and his people. Now you see, this is a cliche. It was all a dream. But back then it was not. This is a new thing. But the truth is this really wasn't a cliche until the TV show Dallas, where Bobby Ewing, after Patrick Duffy left the show for a year, thinking he had a better career than he did and came back a year later, his Wife walks into the room, finds him in the shower, and declares she had a dream where every where he died and everything happened, and it's all not true. I did it. I told you I would. <laughs> Dallas, the TV show. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, since that showing, and this is the real reason I'm coming to that insane point, uh, is because... That was really the moment that the general viewing audience saw this idea, which had been used over the course of time in a more subtle way. They saw it for what it was, 
And since that time, it's kind of the jumping the shark moment where you're done. When you've done this, you've officially hit the worst cliche possible, which is how modern audiences usually view The Devil Rides Out when they come to this end sequence when it's all a dream. It really wasn't at the time, but I understand people's feelings on the subject as well. <laughs> so there was a reasoning behind my insanity, but I told you I'd find a place to go someplace nuts. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> I told you I'd get you on this one. It still works for me in the film. I don't have a, it doesn't break it for me. It still works for me. It works for me too, but for some viewers, it's like, oh, that's a cliche. Well, actually it wasn't then. Now I get it. So that's The Devil Rides Out, which is the first step really in a larger world of the occult created by one of the most important writers in my writing world, Dennis Wheatley. It's a really visual movie. It's a very interesting movie. Terrence Fisher handled it with perfect care. He is he he really I think he's probably the only person who's ever done Dracula, Frankenstein, Mummy, Werewolf, and Satanism in one career. I mean, well, Christopher Lee's done all of those right, things. Right, right. But in terms of was yeah. the hero or monster in all of them. But I'm talking director. He's the only one I think of that went to that depth of of it. And because he had such an intelligent touch with it, and because we had Richard Matheson, who was just one of the best writers of these things ever, they were able to make what could have been a very cliche movie into a very spectacular movie. I can't speak well enough of it, and most of my friends have heard me talk about it too much. <laughs> it's one of the top movies on satanic conspiracies up there with The Black Cat, which I just absolutely adore. And I know you did an episode of that, of course. The Seventh Victim, which, again, you did another one of those. And Rosemary's Baby. But then I always think of this one as the best. It really is an incredibly solid film. It's one that I did not come to until much later in my Hammer film viewing. And I kind of regret it because I feel like this is one that I would have obsessed over. I have not read any of the Dennis Wheatley stories. I really need to. But like Frank and I'm sure like a lot of you out there. The to-read list just continues to grow and grow and grow, and there are so many things on that list that just kind of get lost in the middle because we're like, oh, I want to read that and this and that and this. We're, we just can't help ourselves. It's an addiction. Yeah, it really is. And I made a study of Dennis Wheatley over the years. His grandson, I believe, promotes his uh, books, and they're all available these days in uh, Kindle as well as paperback form, I believe. I have some old copies, and I have all of them on Kindle as well. So they're, they're out there, but I will warn anybody that they are very old school. They're written for a, from a person who grew up in World War One and World War Two, and, you know, has a very old school values, and they come through. He has this very old school values, and occasionally... You know, you have those H.P. Uh, Lovecraft moments of like, oh, I don't think you should have said that. But, <laughs> uh, you know, the the genuine tone of positivity that runs through them always did impress me. Plus, he was an ardent anti-Nazi and he uses Nazis only as villains over the years. And I did love that, too. In fact, he has one Nazi Satan, a couple of Nazi Satanists over the course of his years. So it all works. 
so yeah, that's, this is the devil rides out. You know, I, it's absolutely something that I've always found very important to horror and, uh, you know, I'm glad I finally got to speak to it to a larger audience. You, a couple things. Uh, you mentioned earlier at the beginning of this, it was also known as The Devil's Bride. That was the American release title. Uh, American distributors felt that The Devil Rides Out sounded too Western. And I think I even believed that before I saw the film, before I even knew any better. It's like, ah, oh, it's a Western. And back then, I didn't like what I was like, ah, oh, Westerns, what do they have for me? I don't care. So, yeah, I didn't bother. But uh, boy, was I ignorant and stupid. I. <laughs> You see, you know. I came to it. I didn't know about the movie until later. Yeah. Uh, I found the book "The Devil Rides Out" at a used bookstore when I was in high school. We had a very large used bookstore near us, and I found I was in the horror section, and I wanted something different. And then there was Dennis Wheatley, uh, "The Devil Rides Out," and it said, you know, satanic conspiracy. And I read about it and I started reading Wheatley when I could. I mean, it was a time when it was there was no Amazon or anything. This is the 80s, early 80s. And I'm trying to find them, you know, libraries and stuff like that. And then just by pure chance, one of the TV channels actually had a TV version of The Devil Rides Out with Christopher Lee on at uh, like a two o'clock showing at night. I was going to VHS it. But I had an insomnia attack that night, so I ended up VHSing and watching it, and that was it. Locked from ever, from that moment on. And I actually got in a little bit of trouble, sort of, in high school, because I was in class, and one of his books, The Satanist, which is not a Richelieu book, but is a Satan, uh, is a cult book, uh, fell out of my hand, and the teacher picked it up and started just lambasting it and nasty how could you read this garbage and on and on and on and when she was done i just took the book back and said i like it and walked away from her (laughs) wow okay then (laughs) well it happened a couple of times in my life uh but hers was so negative whereas i had another teacher uh mr mccarthy my 12th grade english teacher who said look you like adventure fiction, that is all good, but why don't you also start looking at some of the greats in adventure fiction? So he got me lo- locked in on Jack London and things like that. So, you know, he tried to be a positive version of it where she was just like trashing me and Dennis Wheatley, and I didn't get upset or angry. I just didn't care because at that point it was like, oh, I'm a fan. I don't care what you like. I've been watching this, these, these things since I was a little kid. So, you know, I, I was lucky. I had parents who loved movies, so they would, anytime they wanted to get rid of me and there was a movie on, it's like, hey, you're going to love this one. There. <laughs> Done. It's like, here, you're going to watch a Dracula movie? Dracula, Godzilla, here, go. <laughs> watch this war movie. There's people getting shot. Okay, done. It, it was a great way to keep kids quiet at that time. The uh, electronic babysitter at times was helped with me becoming such a movie fan and a monster kid, because back in those days, you could watch those movies. These days, you got to actually look for them or own them. It's frustrating a little bit to me now, because I feel like today, the younger crowd and, and even you know, us as adults, it's cool to be into the geeky stuff, the horror stuff, the fantasy stuff, the sci-fi stuff. But yeah, when we were growing up, 
it wasn't necessarily as uh, accepted and or um, promoted to us. And it, it's, it's, I'm glad that kids today don't have to deal with that. Kids today don't know how good they have. Oh boy. Oh yeah. Here we <laughs> go. Here we get go. Off my, get off my lawn. <laughs> Where are some clouds yes. in the sky for me to yell at? You know, come on. <laughs> but at the same time, people are still not seeking out the original stuff, the old stuff, which, you know, is something I'm trying to push more. That's why I wrote the mm-hmm. book on Sadoichi. And, you know, I, I think in a day where you can pretty much find anything out there, you should be trying to find more than just the current thing. Try to find some of the old stuff. Try to find some of the books that you don't know about. Whereas The Witcher was is a great series of books, and I love the movie, uh, the series for Netflix. But you should also go after the Michael Moorcocks or the C.L. Moore, you know, all of the original people who brought you there. You know, Fritz Leiber, these guys wrote, men and women wrote these spectacular books, and Dennis Wheatley is another one where people are forgetting that the roots of your geekdom come from these people who were writing it when people considered them outsiders, lesser, unimportant. You know, I had the pleasure of meeting Michael Moorcock and, you know, he was an amazing human being and him and his wife. And I got to express quickly without being too geeky how much his work meant to me. And I get to read stuff of his from on Facebook where he's very, he was actually very kind to me last year on Facebook, you know, giving me some assurance when I was having some trouble writing something. Uh, And CJ Sherry, another wonderful writer. She also chimed in some really kind words. We're living in this amazing world where you can get access to everything. You should try to find more than the current Marvel movie. And don't take that as a trash of Marvel because I see every one of them the day they come out. So I'm not, trashing the good stuff the new stuff i'm just saying that people should try to find the dennis wheatley's the michael moorcock's the cl moore's and all of these kinds of original stuff that are the basis of what you're seeing now and what you're reading now dennis wheatley unfortunately is one of those who's been forgotten i mean he's been gone since 77 and i never got a chance to meet him or any of his family though i i can only say i really appreciate the work he did and i just hope my work will one day hold up to hold up as well as his does. Well, I think time will tell on that. I enjoy what you do, and it's always interesting to me to see where the influences are coming from when there's a piece of fiction or media that I enjoy. And I mentioned The Mandalorian at the beginning of this, and I, I enjoyed The Mandalorian, don't get me wrong, and I know it has nothing to do with what we're talking about today, but... I really enjoy the source material that inspired it. And that's one of the things that I do struggle with sometimes is that there's so much out there that it's easy to get overwhelmed and not realize that some of these things came from something else that is just as cool, if not even more so. And you mentioned The Witcher, and we talked about The Witcher again. When that series was announced on Netflix, I didn't know. I have to claim ignorance. I didn't realize it was based on novels and short stories. I thought it was based on a game. Granted, the game probably influenced it quite a bit, but I had no idea it had source material in novels. In I literature. got lucky there. I, I have so many friends who know the kind of things I like. My friend Robert Dorff, who I'm always talking, uh, another subject you and I talk about, Lucha movies, uh, he actually recommended them to me, and I found them, and it's like, oh, this is for me. This is my series, and uh, it was just totally spectacular. And the Netflix series was 
wonderful, just so enjoyable. And, it, you know, it's had some controversy over the, the course of time. I don't need to discuss that, but I really love it. And I'm looking forward to the second series. Oh, yeah, me too. My wife and I adored it. As soon as it was over, we immediately started the first episode over again. <laughs> <laughs> you know, soon too. which which was in- incredible, and to know that it had its roots in not even something here in the states, but European fantasy literature, and that's you know, again, you look at movies like The Devil Rides Out and realize it's based on a novel and what he was doing, what Dennis Wheatley was inspired by, and just I feel like you get a much more rich experience when you're able to track these things, and that's why I'm so glad that the Dennis Wheatley books are available. I've got a handful of them on my Kindle. I just haven't read them yet. So I, I know it's easy to get your hands on them right now, and... I'm going to make sure there's links in the show notes to all of this. And as always, Amazon affiliate links, you know, through Monster Kid Radio, we make a a penny or two every time you buy something through one of those. And I'll make sure there's plenty of links to Dennis Wheatley and Frank Children or material there. So you're helping to support us as you're also helping to support one of uh, my favorite writers that I found doing the show. I appreciate that. I would say if you want to start with uh, any of the Wheatley books, it's okay to start with The Devil Rides Out, because even when there is some past events from the Forbidden Territory, he summarizes it very quickly and you understand the characters pretty fast. And there are some subtle changes, like Marie, for example, is a French woman named Marie Lou who lived in uh, in a prince's house in, um, in Russia, Soviet Russia, that they rescued. So there's there's differences, but there's not enough that it's going to feel like you should have read the first book in the series. You really don't because he jumps around a lot anyway. So I would recommend if you're going to go into it, just jump into The Devil Rides Out. Or if you don't want to uh, you know, do something you've read, maybe uh, to The Devil of Daughter, which was the last Wheatley movie made by Hammer Films, because Dennis Wheatley despised that movie. Though I like it a lot. My friend Troy Howarth, the movie writer and uh, voiceover guy, loves it too. I've never seen it. I've never seen To the Devil of Daughter. And part of it was because I, I held off on purpose because I thought eventually we would talk about it on 1951 Down Place and I wanted to come to it fresh. And then I just never got to it. Now, that movie's got a little bit of controversy involved with it regarding uh, some things that happened with the Natasha Kinski character, how young she was. And in well, such, you know, but we, you shouldn't hide. We shouldn't hide that. It, she was 16 and she did a uh, uh, she was naked in the movie, which what which fits the movie. But also, the, you know, it's it's controversial to people about that. And I, I completely understand their discomfort. But this is a movie about Satanism. It's an R movie. It's supposed to be a scary movie. It's supposed to have moments where you're really despising some of the parts that you're seeing. But at the same time, old world man, Dennis Wheatley found what they did to be very distasteful and horrific. And he banned Hammer from ever doing his movies again, which I understand his feelings as well, but that was also towards the end of Hammer, so I don't think they would have done any more of his movies at that point. Right. Uh, there was a remake of uh, The Haunting of Toby Jug, uh, starring, uh, what's the heck's his name? The actor from 
uh, who's going to be playing Batman now. He was in Twilight. It just dripped, slipped out of my head the minute I said <laughs> Robert Patton. it. Pattinson, yes, Robert Pattinson. Pattinson. Yeah, yeah, he uh, he's not a, people really ripped uh, his whole career apart because he's uh, Twilight. He's actually a very good actor and he did a decent job in The Haunting of Toby Jug. I'm not a major fan of that one because that's one of those. Is, is it really haunting or is it not really a haunting? And I, I don't know. I grew up on Scooby-Doo. I'm, t- I'm done with that. <laughs> The moral of all Scooby Doo is all that all evil are apparently older white guys. <laughs> <laughs> it comes down to a lot of the things we consider horror cliches actually were not cliches that were created by Dennis Wheatley and people that influenced him before them. You know, there was a lot of horror stuff and the Penny Dreadfuls and all of that. There is, as you said earlier, there's no, there's nothing original. Everything's an adaptation. It's just he was particularly good at it. You know, that's how I like to put it. He was just particularly good at this stuff. And he made the occult feel both real and in the way the seventh victim did so well, almost banal, almost like, you know, almost kind of ordinary. That's one thing that actually scared me more about the seventh victim than anything was the fact that when those people were talking, they actually sounded more like a social club while talking about murder and stuff like that. It was just so average. That's scarier to me than people screaming and cursing and like Ernest Borgnine in the devil's the devil's reign, you know, nastiness. You know, you can get more fear out of subtlety than you can out of directness. That's why. The little kid in the first uh, Omen movie, Damien, when he's just looking at you at times, that was scarier to most people than uh, with the music than anything else. So you got me. I finally got a chance to can't pass to you about this anymore. Got to find something new. Well, and we won't wait seven months next time. Yes, definitely. Between you and Kenny, I think, uh, and well, and Dr. Tom, I'm, I have the regulars for Lucha de Mayo. And yeah, I'm looking at doing that again this year. We'll see. Right now, we're in the middle of the second of three theme months in a row. So we'll see if I'm theme months out by then. We'll, we'll see. But if I do it, yeah, you're on speed dial, brother. We always have a good time with that because I just love Lucha movies. I wish I had a, the, one of those, some of my friends have these wider spread interests, but I'm more, you know, directly on one thing and want to know it from beginning to end. And Lucha, you know, the Dennis Wheatley, uh, those uh, Machiste Peplum movies with the, the, with the, the Italian muscle man uh, in the Greek, Greek and Roman settings, those kind of things. Those are my things. <laughs> uh, and if you need a recommendation on that, just because I know what you like. Uh, there's a movie called um, Machiste in Hell. Uh, it's also, I think, known as the Gate of Hell. It's actually where this heroic muscle man Machiste goes to 15th century Scotland to rescue people, actually walks into the through the gates of hell and has a whole adventure in the pit, basically. Uh, it, something. It's, it, it, it's, it's fun. It's fun. It's cool. It's fun. It's, look, low budget. Like all those movies, big muscle guy who can't act, you know, those things are all still there. <laughs> right on. Well, man, this has been a blast just kind of 
catching up with you a little bit and talking about all this. And I'm really excited to see what's coming up next for you writing-wise. The year is, it's early in the year so far, but you've already made some announcements and some waves online talking about what you've got coming up next. I'll make sure there are links to your Amazon author page because, and listeners, if you want to follow up and and keep on top of what Frank's up to, would you say Facebook is the best place to do that right now? Yeah, Facebook is where you can find me. Uh, You know, I'm always putting something out. I, just recently uh, announced that I signed a three book deal with one of my publishers, Black Coat Press, which produces books in France and the United States and produces some of the most interesting um, French translation books you'll ever see. Uh, horror that was, you know, like vampire horror that was written 60 years or more before uh, Stoker's Dracula really amazing science fiction adventure they're you know really unbelievable stuff that you can get out of black coat press and i've signed for a three book deal there and i'm i started it on january 1st i'm twenty five thousand words into it and just having the best time of my life writing this book that'll be announced probably around spring we'll give the details the covers are already established for all three so that's a little bit of pressure <laughs> And I should have some stuff coming out from Pro Se very soon. Um, Red God's Rage, I mentioned earlier. Uh, some other stuff. One uh, that fits today's theme is coming out later in the year called uh, The Satanic Gangs of New York. Okay. It's entirely obviously in New York in the 1800s with uh, Satanism. <laughs> oh, okay, then. Yeah, I guess we know where my, my influence was on that one. Very cool. Well, let's have you back on the show uh, in the future. Like I said, at least for Lucha de Mayo when that happens. I keep saying if it's going to happen, if it's going to, you know, it's going to happen. It's happening. You know, it's going to happen. I can even reserve the movie I want. Uh oh. Uh-oh. Well, we'll talk off mic. We'll talk off mic. <laughs> of course, of course. I don't want to do it on mic, but I want to reserve it before anybody else gets a lock on it. Sounds good, man. Frank, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Best of 2020 to you, and good luck with all the writing. Can't wait to see what you do. Thank you, Derek. <laughs> Well, you heard Frank. He said the best place to keep up with him is on Facebook. So I'm going to make sure there's a link to his Facebook page in the show notes. Also, I'll make sure there's a link to his page on Amazon, his author page. So you can check out all the cool stuff that he's got coming up, all the stuff that he's already got out there. And of course, there will be a link in the show notes, Amazon affiliate buttons to all of Frank's books. So if you want to pick up anything by Frank, you'll be able to uh, get his books while supporting the show. Uh, just a comment here. Frank did talk about a movie called Macheste, Machisti, Machest. The movie he was talking about was The Richest Curse. And that is something that we've talked about here on the show in the past. Actually, a little bit ago, I had my friend Chris McMillan on the show and we talked about that movie. That was episode number 335. And that was back in 2017. I will make sure there's a link directly to this episode if you're interested in the show notes. Frank, once again, thanks a lot. Good luck with all the book projects. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely have you back on the show in May for Lucha de Mayo. I'll see you in hell soon. The Witch's Curse. Now we bring to screen the most incredible of the adventures of Machiste. Machiste, whose superhuman strength and unfailing courage spell disaster for tyranny and freedom for the oppressed. I must save her. But this task is too big even for you. Give it up and return to the land of the living while you still have time. Impossible. I must save her. 
How often has this happened to you? You're on your way home after a long day when suddenly tragedy strikes. No human mind could imagine the enormous destructive power of this maddened, killing thing. Professor, there's a big lizard back there and he's heading this way. Now get aboard! It's the kind of thing which can ruin your weekend. To prevent catastrophe, you need the Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack. This book features extensively researched methods to help you survive a giant monster event. You'll discover which vehicle you should use for making your escape, which method of counterattack is best for specific types of monsters. Hydrogen weapons, capable of wiping cities, countries off the face of the earth, are completely ineffective against this creature from the skies. And what common mistakes people make while fighting back. So pick up your copy of The Handbook for Surviving a Giant Monster Attack by Anthony Wendell today on Amazon. You can thank us by surviving. hysterical, hilarious horrors when you join those Bowery boys as overnight guests in a mansion of merry maniacs. We just want your heads. Well, oh, well, if you said that in a foot. Our heads? Uncle Anton, the scientific stoop. Oh, oh, oh. Would you like a high cut or a low cut, sir? Oh, I'd like a low cut. Uncle Derek, the medical madman. What is it you're trying to say? Help! Oh. Yeah. Cousin Francine, the fluff with the stuff. I mean business. Aunt Amelia, who's no camellia. The butler Grisson, he's gruesome. The family tree, a man-eating honeysuckle. Boy, oh boy, I feel just like a space cadet. This will register his brain potential. <laughs> My friend here has a vacuum-packed head. The Bowery Boys get the heebies, the jeebies, the willies, and the shakes while you get the laughs of the year. Oh, he's Gentlemen, I have a suggestion. 50 50. No, no, no. Routine six, Satch. interrupt this program to bring you the following special announcement. The world's first horror head transplant has failed, and five brain donors have died in the experiment. Now you can see it all at your local theater in Beast of Blood, and on the same show, Curse of the Vampires, both brand new in gory color. You'll see a mad fiend transplant human heads in the Cave of Horrors, and encounter stunning, screaming, shocking terror as it lives. A monster's head detached from its body, causing savage and inhuman destruction. More fantastic than science, more shocking than fantasy, the creature without a head, controlled by an insane artificial brain, Beast of Blood. Don't miss Beast of Blood and Curse of the Vampires, both rated GP.
So that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. As always, you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio at the website monsterkidradio.net. Everything is here. Our contact information, our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And we have a voicemail line. It is 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. If you have any thoughts about this week's movie or anything that we've talked about here on the show or anything that's coming up, please feel free to drop me a line and I'll include you in a future episode of the podcast over at our website you can also find links to our facebook page and our facebook group as well as our twitter please consider sharing the posts on facebook retweeting tweets basically just spreading the word and getting more ears on monster kid radio the more the merrier right that's how it works right yep that is how it works there you go see again don't let my niece down (laughs) all right so what's coming up next week on the show do you know what's coming up next week lexi no, I do not. It's because I haven't told you and I haven't told anybody else yet except for Chris McMillan because Chris McMillan will be the guest next week when he comes on the show for week five. Yeah, we did five weeks of these types of movies. Week five of the Satanic Rites of January. He and I are going to talk about the movie The Devil's Reign. There have been films about earthquakes, airplane disasters, and blazing infernos. But there has never been anything like... The Devil's Reign. His face. That wasn't your father. It was his face. Mother? Mother! Corbin! Damn you! They had no faces. The Devil's Reign. The 300-year search for the power to damn mankind is over. And the towering terror of the devil on earth is now unleashed. From 1975, and uh, here's a secret. I haven't seen the movie yet. I'm actually holding off until right before I record with Chris. I hope it's worth it. As I said earlier in the show, there are Amazon affiliate links to everything that we've talked about here on the show. Anything that you think you might be interested in buying through Amazon, please consider using our affiliate buttons because we do get a penny or two per sale. And that way you're kind of helping out the show while helping yourself to some really cool movies, books, and who knows what else. So please consider shopping through the Monster Kid Radio website. I think that's pretty much it. I want to wrap this up and get this out to everybody. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to Lexi Deluxe for introing the show. And thanks to the band Operation Octopus for allowing us to play their music on this week's episode. You can find them at operationoctopus.bandcamp.com. The song is called Evil Thought. It's from their album El Calavera. They are an Italian surf band, and they're pretty darn cool. Go check out their album and let them know that you heard them here on Monster Kid Radio. Professor Frenzy's bedtime story is copyright 2020, Jerry Green. The song that we used during Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland was called He Sees Always, and that is copyright Darren Curtis. And finally, Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. My name is Derek M. Cook. And I am Lexi Deluxe. And I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao. Bye-bye. we